You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Isaac Butler. Isaac, could you please introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, hi everyone. My name is Isaac Butler, and I'm a bunch of different things. I'm a writer, I'm a theater director, and I am currently the co-host of uh, Slate.com's podcast, Working, which is uh, interviews with creative people about their jobs and the creative process. Uh, thank you for coming on. I'm a, I'm a big fan of your work, um, and I'm excited to talk about our topic today, which is Hamilton. Yeah. Um, uh, and we'll also be touching on Hamilton's connections to Shakespeare, which you wrote a piece about about uh, three and a half years ago, four years ago. Um, ill-timed, ill-timed from a readership perspective. Yeah, so just a, we'll, a, a we'll link close to this reading of Hamilton's politics uh, that is published like the day Trump wins the election. Yeah, I think that, I, think, I noticed that too. It, I think it was published November seventh, twenty sixteen. So I missed this the first time it this piece came out uh, for. Pop- you know, possibly many reasons, but, um, I went, I, when I reread it again, that's what really made me want to talk to you about Hamilton, which I'm a big fan of, and you're a big fan of. Um, and you are also, we should note, you hosted a, like a limited run podcast called Lend Me Your Ears that is yeah. about uh, Shakespeare and politics that is, uh, very good, and we'll link to that as well, and I encourage people to, to check that out. I'm sure it's still, you know, every bit as, as relevant. <laughs> it came out about you know, I just, 18 months ago. I or? just listened to one of the episodes um, mm-hmm. recently because the public theater is doing this audio play version of Richard II, and we did an episode of Lemire Ears about Richard II. And I was like, let me just listen to this again. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm actually pretty proud of this. It's, it's not every day that you create something, and a couple years later you still feel good about it. So... Yes, uh, I will. it doesn't surprise me that that uh, has stood the test of some some length of time, though it feels like a totally different world, um, you know, 18 months ago when, when that came out. But um, so let's start with Hamilton. So the, I guess, so the, you know, probably most people know the reason uh, everyone is talking about Hamilton, once again, is that uh, a filmed ver- version of the stage production starring the original catch, cast, which was filmed in 2016, uh, and they held on to it for four years, was released on Disney+. Plus, um, yep. And... Uh, so people kind of dove back into the Hamilton discourse that, uh, that went, you know, captured the internet's, uh, attention, you know, four, four, four and a half years ago. Um, and yeah, as you said, you, you wrote this piece about, uh, Henry the Fourth Part One, uh, comparing it to Hamilton. And so, yeah, so I just wanted to bring you on and we'll talk about the, the play. And one of the things I saw you tweeting about that really made me want to talk to you is like, you tweeted about how the, the, you had a sense of exhaustion with the, discourse around Hamilton, how it was so obsessed with political interpretations of the play, what the play, like, got wrong or ignored, and why it's good or bad, you know, capital G, capital B, uh, <laughs> in terms of, like, you know, furthering the, the pursuit of social justice or something, and not enough people were just talking about it and analyzing it as a great work of art, which is what it is. Um, so I hope we'll, we're, we're mainly going to stick towards that end of things and not the, you know, the, the various political readings that, um, the, that the play has gotten. Yeah, I I should say to caveat my own rant there that, you know, um, it's great when there's a great work of art that blows up big and is super popular. And then people want to talk about it in its cultural context. And that makes complete sense to me. I just felt like it was unbalanced. Like that conversation was drowning out a conversation about like what the show actually is, what it means, what it says, what questions it's asking, what are its themes, because it became all about. Uh, is this show Obama? <laughs> you know, like that was sort of like, how does this relate to the Obama legacy? But there's, there's more stuff going on in that play than kind of Obama or Trump. I feel like. Yeah. And, and speaking of, you know, things, um, 
standing the test of time, of course, we'll, we'll never know. But I, I feel like in 50 years, 100 years, if people are still around, um, they will still be paying attention to Hamilton and interpreting it and reinterpreting it and listening to the original cast recording. Um, yeah, I, I, I think so for sure. I mean, I sort of felt like the show's moment had completely passed when Trump was elected. And in fact, I I said this somewhere else. I, I, I not on purpose, but realized a few months later that the day Trump won the election was the last time I listened to the original cast recording. Oh, that's interesting. For, for a very long time, actually. Um, and so I went into watching the filmed version with a certain amount of suspicion, a certain amount of this is going to really hurt to watch this thing. Mm-hmm. And what I found instead was I fell in love with the show all over again. And I've been listening to the original cast recording since and I've had those songs in my head and, and everything like that. I, I think it certainly reads differently now. All art reads differently as the culture in which you read it or the context, I should say, in which you read it changes. But um but it was still it was still great. Mm-hmm. So did you see the uh, the original production either at the public theater or on Broadway with the original cast? I am not so insufferable that I saw it with the original cast of the public, but I am just insufferable <laughs> enough that I saw it with the original Broadway cast. Okay, so uh, so that's great. So you saw the you know you saw it in its original conception by Lin Manuel Miranda. I saw it only um, last summer uh, on, on Broadway. And uh, I don't think anyone from the maybe some of the backup dancers or something were, were the same, but uh, all the other major cast members uh, had switched one or more times, uh, and so you know that so that was my my experience. Oh, I, I have a little visual gag here. I forgot which is I'm wearing my um my, oh, nice. my rise up shirt, which shows that a super fan of Hamilton I I am, and that that's, I, that's I can't amazing. be you know very neutral in praising this this work. But anyway. Um, Okay, I should have been drinking out of my commemorative Hamilton cup because for those of you watching this who don't know, when you go to Broadway, when you buy booze, it now comes in a, condem- a commemorative plastic cup, and then you can get cheaper refills if you bring that cup to the uh, you know to, to to buy more booze. So you know you just end up with this collection of novelty plasticware uh, that clogs your kitchen up. But yes, yeah, so I, I I should have joined you in that. Okay, so here's so here was one of my initial thoughts when I saw um, when I saw it on Broadway. So I, I you know I fell in love with the soundtrack when when I got it early in 2016 and was like you know medium level obsessed with the play for a long time. I, I didn't stop listening to it uh, as you did. You know on car trips I would I would listen to the uh, the entire run through. Um, and then when I finally saw it live, um, it was a, a very emotional experience for me. And uh, basically throughout the entire first half. Uh, or the entire first act, like, I just found myself, like, weeping um, throughout almost every song. And, you know, I was just, like, overcome with with emotion at this. And I'm not, like, an easy crier to begin with. Uh, you so had that, an experience of the sublime. <laughs> it, it was close to that, at least. Um, and I listened, and I had the sound, like, I, I'm, I'm not generally a musical theater fan. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't go to a ton of Broadway shows. I've lived far away from New York City for a number of years. So, um, so this is, you know, not... Uh, something I normally do, but like I, you know, I had I I heard the soundtrack so many times, I had it in my head. I could tell when they deviated, giving different you know interpretations or emphasis uh, in the production uh, a year ago. Uh, so anyway, so when I watched the the stage version, or when I watched the filmed version on Disney Plus, um, I I did not have that overwhelming moment of of the sublime. Um, there were like one or two moments where I felt like a little like my eyes you know watering a little bit. Or a pang of emotion, uh, you know. There's there's these sad moments in the play, uh, people dying and stuff. Um, but it just it is different. And so I was thinking, you know, is this <laughs> is it the um, 
Is it the times we live in, or is it just you just can't actually capture what it's like to see a live performance, even if you have the like most bl- brilliant creators uh, and actors involved, and you know they are are filming it exactly as they want to, like like there's watching it on your TV, and then there's this. I think this was originally intended to be shown on the big screen, right before yes COVID. Yeah, so that is perhaps different, and a big screen experience is different than a small screen experience, but it just, it just wasn't the same. It just didn't hit the same. So what, what, what did you think about that since you actually did see the original? Well, once it is no longer live and once you are no longer in the room where it's happening, uh, it loses something that no matter what, there's just no way to make up for the actual power of presence and liveness that happens when you see a great show in person. That's one of the reasons why, I've dedicated my life to uh, the, the theater is is chasing that feeling and trying to create that feeling for other people. It, it, it really isn't replaceable. Um, you can do other things that are of equal value or of different value or whatever, but but that specific feeling you can't um, you you can't replace. Just like listening to a live album isn't the same as having seen that concert, you know, or, or uh, you know, even if it's a bootleg of the exact concert you saw. Um, And I think actually one of the songs that I realized it the most was uh, Wait For It. Um, Mm. Because when Leslie Odom Jr. gets, you know, when they get to the big bridge and he says, wait for it, sings, wait for it, and the chorus repeats it. When you see it live, you actually feel those repeated wait for it's get larger and larger and larger and fill up more space because there's more singers each time the phrase is repeated. Mm -hmm. We even get some of a sense of that on the album. There is no way to convey that. And And I was watching it on a, like a, TV with a surround sound setup and everything. There's just no way to recreate that. Um, and so, yeah, you do lose some of that stuff. What you gain is the ability to go close and pick up nuances in the performances. Because I saw it from, I had, I had house seats, I think. So I, I had pretty good seats. Uh, the, the house seats are seats that are, are owned by the production that they give or sell, you know, kind of the day of. Um, that's a terrible explanation of them, but just so you understand that they're like nice seats that they mm-hmm. pulled for people that I happen to win in a thing. And so, I, you know, these were, you know, good, good seats in the, in the second section of the orchestra, I guess. And, um, I certainly couldn't pick out all the details that those cameras can. I think sometimes they get seduced by that. The, the way the, the film is shot for people who haven't seen it is they filmed a couple of performances and then they additionally did the show without an audience and with a cameraman on stage tracking specific okay. moments. Yeah, I, I figured uh, there must have been multiple takes because you, don't, yeah. you never see a camera. You never see a camera and Lin Manuel's Miranda's um, goatee stubble changes length a couple times. Right? Oh, okay, okay. So you, you're okay. So you're pay, either you have a much better TV than I do, or you're paying very close attention. <laughs> or just like closer attention with the magnifying glass. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the um, if you've seen the film, the the obvious first cut in is when Lin Manuel Miranda appears and sings his first line, "Alexander Hamilton." My name is Alexander Hamilton. And the reason why they've done that is because that actual entrance stops the show for at least a minute of the crowd going insane. And, you know, that just doesn't have any value. And so instead they cut to that guy. Almost every time they cut to the camera wandering on the stage, picking out details, I thought it was actually a mistake. I thought they should have shown a little more restraint and stayed with just the cameras that were that were on the sides, in the back and in the front Mm -hmm. uh, and just kind of let more of the stage picture evolve. But what you do get through the ability to zoom and edit is little nuances and grace notes in all of the 
performances, which um, particularly when it came to Leslie Odom Jr. and Philippa Sue, I thought were totally essential to, to picking out what's going on in those performances. I mean, the, the amount of agonizing conflict that Leslie Odom Jr.'s face brings to his portrait of Burr that he, he truly admires and is astounded by Hamilton, even while wanting to crush him into a fine mist is, uh, is, is, and watching that just play out on his face is a really incredible thing to watch happen. And similarly with Philippa Sue, particularly before Eliza is introduced, she is actually on stage a few times as a kind of chorus member, ghost kind of figure. Right. And you can see that she is actually reacting to what's going on on stage in character as Eliza in this sort of purgatorial zone. Um, all, all of that I thought was really interesting was something that you just never would have seen unless you were in maybe the first three rows of the house. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the close-up on seeing someone's face, unless you're really, yeah, you're really close. So when actually, when, when I saw it, uh, my, my mother, uh, very kindly and extravagantly got us seats in like the fifth row. They were best sister I'll ever have in a Broadway show. And yeah, so we were much better seats than I had. So we were right there and, um, and you know, could see the spittle flying and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you almost never, but even then you don't get the kind of close ups that you can get with a camera and a TV, um, yeah. screen or a, or a theater projection or something. Um, and, yeah, so there's a lot of places to go. I mean, I, I do wonder if my reaction would have been different if I did see it on the big screen. This, I've, I've told this little anecdote um, before on the show, but I saw uh, five or seven years ago, I saw E.T. on the big screen. Um, and especially the final, like, 15 minutes of, of E.T., which I had seen as a child and but hadn't really seen since, are, like, incredibly powerful um, on the big screen. The music is so loud, and you're just being, like, overcome by these, like, waves of emotion. And there's, like, hardly... There's, like, ten lines of dialogue in the final 15 minutes and then right. you know et leaves and you're like you can't believe it uh and then the movie's over uh spoiler alert sorry if anyone hasn't seen et uh before but um but yeah, it, it, it just like the the big screen experience is different and it seems like we don't know when that or we're gonna have access to that experience again because of the pandemic so that sucks um but i no, yeah I, I, I do wonder if they had released this and then you know, just there's something about the the sheer scale of the of the big literal big screen and how loud it can be in the theater. You're not going to get that unless you have like some crazy home sound system or something. So so I yeah so that's it's weird because you know if you're seeing it on Broadway, the people unless you have really good seats, the people are far away and somewhat small. And then when you see on the big screen, they're gigantic, larger than life. You know, yeah. overwhelming. But like both of those somehow are can be more like all-encompassing experiences than just the sitting sitting on your couch. <laughs> yeah, totally. and, and, you know, one thing we, I should say is that the concern would be when you can get into close-up and stuff like that, that the performances would be too big because they're, they have to be big enough to reach someone in the back row of the balcony, right. you know? Uh, and I actually thought for the most part that was not the case. You know, for the most part, you, you just kind of go along with these are theatrical performances and it's going, and because the, lyrics are so larger than life, you know, the, the experience of it is so larger than life. I thought it, it created a kind of zone where a larger than life performance would still fit in mm -hmm. really well. Um, okay. Is there anything else you want to say about, about this particular, well, let's talk about the, um, okay. So spoiler alert, if anyone you know doesn't know what happens at the end of Hamilton. Uh, so there's this, uh, there was a piece on slate about it. Um, the very final like shot yeah. or action of, um, the musical is uh, Eliza, the the 
widow of Hamilton who's been uh, murdered in the duel by Burr uh, is looking towards the stage or looking towards the audience and lets out a, a cry that's somewhere between ecstatic and shocked or mourning or something. And yeah. and so I guess this has been interpreted in various ways. And then I thought, I, maybe I'm misremembering this. The version that I saw last summer, I believe did not have that same setup. It had the actress playing Eliza facing like to the side. And then suddenly like Hamilton was there for a second. And then, and then it was, and then it was black. So they, I, but I, maybe I dreamed that. I, I need to figure out. Yeah, if, I don't know if anyone else has seen that. But, um, but that. So this, it's, so that's not. It's also not in the cast album. That right cry, the shriek or cry or something. Um. So unless you had seen it pre, uh, on Broadway previously, then you hadn't uh gotten that part of it. Uh. So what, what did you think of that? Well, I mean, I actually didn't remember that moment from when I had seen it. And I, and I remember that production pretty well, you know. And so when, when Sam Adams, um, who's a, a wonderful critic, wrote that piece uh, for Slate, I was like, oh, yeah, I, now I vaguely remember this happening. Um, but I honestly never really engaged with that moment that deeply because I guess, and like, this is going to sound, I, there's no way to say this without sounding snotty. I think it's just a deliberately ambiguous ending whose point is to end the show. And it does not actually, there's not much going on with it beyond that is, is kind of my feeling about it is that you just want to end on a moment where it feels, you know, she's entered the afterlife and then you have this reaction that's not entirely explicable and then it ends. Um, and so I, I've never really gotten into the big debates over that. I, on Twitter, I, I listed a few of my favorite well, we have to end this show sometime. You know, now's the moment for the ending gestures that I've used as a director or that I've seen as an audience member. And, you know, my favorite is when you get to sort of the last big chunk of the show, the last movement of the show, maybe it's the last scene or there's a big monologue that ends it or whatever, you slowly and imperceptibly fade the lights down from a general look to a really specific look. It kind of looks like the stage is melting. Mm -hmm. And then it gets to that really specific look and you hold on that for about five and then it slowly fades, right? And people are just like, oh, wow, the show is really over now. <laughs> um, another one is the lights get brighter and brighter and brighter while a louder and louder and louder sound effect plays, and uh -huh. then it snaps to a blackout. That's a good one for a kind of, you know, the world is going to shit kind of ending. I mean, there's a lot of them in the kind of director's uh, bag of tricks. Uh -huh. And so I just felt like, oh, you pulled that out of that bag of tricks. I know what that is, you know, Um but I also think that's a kind of catty theater person way to react to it and doesn't <laughs> engage with it with the kind of depth I've told people to engage with the show. So maybe I'm a hypocrite. I don't know. Uh, I certainly don't think, I, I mean, if I had to explain it, you know, if you put a gun to my head and told me to choose a meaning for it, I'd be like, well, yeah, she's, she sees the afterlife. You know, it's like when you die, even the, the most fervent believer is going to be a little surprised that they were right that there's an afterlife and she gets to see her husband, you know, there's this moment of the, the terror of death and then the recognition of, of being on the other side, because this is a play that firmly asserts that there is an afterlife. Um, there's both a afterlife in the sense of history and legacy and narrative. And then there's a second afterlife, which is actually like there is an other side. They keep, mm -hmm. they, they talk about quite a bit in the second yeah. half of the show. Yeah. Um, and that, um, so here, here's here's a possible segue. So that uh, the final song, the final um, uh, number of the show is "Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story," 
and yeah, it seems to take place in this liminal um, uh, space where where the characters are the dead characters are returning as ghosts to like give one final uh, yeah. you know statement about about what happened during the show. It's, I guess it's a little like um, uh, our town. Uh, yeah, maybe that's it's possible. A very, it's, it's a really classic. I mean, one of the there was another show that came out around that time that that my wife and I saw, and she was like, "I can't believe they went for it." Was a new new play, and she was like, "I can't believe they went for this to the ending," which is when the you know the people turn to the audience, they describe the manner of their death. Right? They're mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. "I lived for thirty more years until I was hit by a car." Okay, and then the yeah, next yeah. person, that, you know, like it's it's a it's a cla- but it's a classic for a reason. It works. It has a real power if you do it right, you know. And so this has the kind of testimonials of all the presidents that came after, and then Eliza narrates the next five decades of her life, which were largely devoted towards um, building the legacy of uh, not just Hamilton, actually, but some of the other founding fathers because she helped raise money for the Washington Monument. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and then she interviewed the soldiers who served with Hamilton. Apparently, given I don't know if it seemed like oral history wasn't didn't really exist back then, but that must exist in some form. Um, okay, but then I remember, especially well, I, I don't know. I, there was a point where I thought that the final that final number is uh, is uh, the end of Hamlet. Um, it's it's Hamlet dying and. Uh, he says to her, you know, he tells Horatio, that you know, these bodies high on a stage be placed <laughs> into the view, right? Well, he, I mean, it's, it's telling her, it's telling Horatio, you know, you can't die. You can't drink the poison because I need someone yeah. to, to t- tell what actually happened. Yes. And, um, and so there's a lot of, uh, so, okay. So here's the segue, uh, you know, Shakespeare and Hamilton, um, yeah. there, there's, uh, explicit, uh, um, you know, explicit, uh, Shakespeare references, in the play, mostly to Macbeth, um, yep. and then there's uh, comparisons that are more implicit, like maybe uh, there's some Hamlet in there. And you, um, uh, you know, published on the day before the 2016 election, wrote this piece. Great timing again. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wrote this piece about um, Henry the Fourth, Part One, and Hamilton. And yeah. so Henry the Fourth, Part One is actually my favorite Shakespeare play. So the, the, the oh, fact great. that I somehow missed this piece for the past three and a half years, I'm like kicking myself, um, but it, we'll link to it. It's an interesting piece, and you, I know you're, so you wrote it like four years ago, and we'll just talk about it a little bit. Um, I, I reread it I reread it in prep to see the, the movie, actually, because I was like, what did I say about this back then? Uh, so so I'm pretty familiar with my arguments. I think I, think I still believe them. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we all change as human beings, but right. I think I think that one is still represents sort of how so a lot of oh, yeah, A lot changed in the past three and a half years, um, but so that didn't change is the, uh, you know, the structure of the double in in plays and so it, the obvious double Hamilton and Burr in yeah. Hamilton and then you have the double of Hotspur and uh, Prince Hal in Henry the Fourth Part One um, and yeah so I, th- I think what you wrote was yeah it's interesting like just grappling with like what what are the what, what is trying to be said uh, you know through the through these characters and. Yeah. Okay. Well, so why don't you just talk a little bit about about that piece? Yeah. Sure. So I um, obviously there's a lot of Shakespeare to Hamilton. Hamilton is a contemporary attempt to write a Shakespearean history play. I don't know that Lin Manuel Miranda actually had that in his mind, but there's a number of different connections. Shakespeare was basing his history plays on a popular and somewhat um, not reputable. Uh, historical account, Hollingshed's Chronicles, uh, you know, and um, Lin-Manuel Miranda is doing the same with uh, Ron Chernow's Hamilton, which I think 
lots of historians have a lot of problems with, but it's a contemporary popular history uh, of um, Batman and his era. Um, and then there's an attempt to kind of narrativize that to tell a story about what history is, what power is, politics, ambition, you know, all sorts of things. Um, we're pretty sure that Shakespeare acted in all of his plays. We, I mean, we don't know for sure, but, you know, he, he almost certainly acted in Henry IV Part One. He did not, he would not have played Hal, but uh, he would have acted in Henry IV Part One. Is, it, is there an idea? Because usually the, the understanding is that he played old men. Uh, yeah, I, I, some people, if I remember correctly, and, and I could have this completely wrong because I don't have my sources on the cast of those plays in front of me. But uh, if I remember correctly, the, the, the legend, you know, the thing we would like to believe is that he played the king, that he played King Henry. Um, but there's plenty of other old men in that play. I mean, the, the thing is that the doubling in Henry IV does not just um, go to Hal and Hotspur. Uh, you know, Hal has two competing father figures right. in the King and Falstaff. Hotspur has um, two kind of father figures in Northumberland and Westmoreland. I mean, it, it's all over the place. Um, uh, it, as it is in many of Shakespeare's plays, there's there's doubles upon doubles upon doubles, which kind of reaches its peak in Hamlet, where there's just a copy of everything. I mean, everything has its double somewhere, yeah. you know. Um, and so... But so, I, you know, Henry the Fourth Part One is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, for sure. I, I absolutely love it. I directed it as my senior thesis in college. Uh, really? For, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so I actually, um, you know, seeing a production of Henry the Fourth Part One in college was a key moment in my life in a weird way. Um, I saw a traveling production of um, what was then the Shenandoah Shakespeare Company and now has a different uh -huh. name, American Shakespeare Company, I think, uh, doing Henry the Fourth Part One. I had already read it in my uh, Shakespeare histories, histories and tragedies class, and I was kind of like, "Yeah, I don't, you know, this doesn't seem that funny to me. I don't really get it." And and then just the way they, it was just a very like, um, sort of modern, like modern speech, but they, but clarify, like speaking in a way that it clarified so much of the complex language and the production, and it was also uh, extremely funny and had yeah. a uh, a bit where in the, in the famous scene where. Uh, where Hal and Falstaff switch uh, personas um, when the guy who was playing uh, Falstaff became Hal. He did a uh, Keanu Reeves voice and, and everyone laughed. So it, it had all this goofy stuff in it. Um, but then I was like, oh my God, I get like, this is, this is as funny as anything, you know, I would, I would see that was, you know, produced yeah. uh, this year. And, and then I saw I, that like got me really into Shakespeare and I wrote my senior thesis on Shakespeare and I've Amazing. been a Shakespeare nerd ever since. But, but then, uh, sorry, I interrupted you. So you, you did a, you produced, you directed a, a, I directed it as my senior thesis in college, which was probably a mistake, you uh -huh. know, for a 22 year old to try to do like a three hour long dense Shakespeare history. But, um, uh, anyway, so I, I love that play and I just started thinking about this kind of how the themes of ambition and what's politically possible, you know, uh, uh, work in those two plays and what uh, Hal's rise in Henry the fourth part one and Alexander's rise in Hamilton might have to do with each other. And, um, you know, obviously there's, there's other source texts. I don't, I don't even know if, if Lin-Manuel Miranda was thinking about Henry the fourth part one. I mean, a, a much more obvious um, reference point for that show is Peter Schaffer's Amadeus, uh, specifically the stage play, not just the movie, because the stage play is like narrated by Salieri, you know, and it opens with you being told that Salieri is, murders Amadeus, you know, so there's, there's lots of reference points there. But I just thought in terms of its dynamics and its themes, these two plays had a lot to say to each other and that reading, kind of reading one through the other would be great, especially because I, I think that 
actually, you know, um, Henry the Fourth Part One's critique of Hal is much more explicit in that text than Hamilton's critique of Hamilton, which I, I think there is a critique there in Hamilton. I think that musical is more complicated than people than just being a simple, you know, hagiography. Um, but I, I was struck by the idea that this playwright writing under a very strict regime of official censorship, uh, you know, in London was able to make a play that had like a lot more criticisms of, of people in power than, um, the, the Hamilton musical. And that, 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 that was sort of what got me into thinking about those two shows together. Um, and some of it also grew out of, um, feeling like the musical of Hamilton, particularly in the second half, actually does have a critique of Hamilton in there and that, that it wasn't getting paid enough attention to and that I could, could kind of try to break that out a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the, um, you know, certainly, uh, Hal does not come off looking great after Henry the Fourth Part One or Part Two. Um, yeah. And, uh, and King Henry. Or to my mind, Henry V, but that's a very controversial position on my part. Right. He's so, he's portrayed in a more heroic way, but he does also like, sent, like, sentence one of his friends to be. Bardoff. Hanged. Poor Bardoff. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, you know, is, is Falstaff the, uh, moral center of, <laughs> of Henry the Fourth? Um, I think I actually wrote a paper making that case. Um, and I got like a, I got like a B minus on it or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but yeah, Henry, the King Henry, the fourth doesn't seem like such a great guy either. And, you know, he has that famous line in the part two about, you know, busying trouble, busy mind with foreign wars or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's not until you get to Henry, to Henry the fifth that there's a fairly positive portrayal of a leader like, you know, within that, the Henriad of, uh, plays because, you know, Richard II was, was a even worse king, I guess. Yeah, um, although, although there's this whole tension in Henry V where the chorus is telling you how great Henry is. Uh, but then if you actually just look at the events of the play and how you're how they're portrayed, you're like, really? Uh, and particularly if you read the plays in sequence, right? Because w what does, what does King Henry tell Hal on his deathbed? But, you know, busy, busy the minds with the foreign war. Start a war on a bullshit pretext, you know, to consolidate your power. And what does Hen Hal do as soon as he's king in the very beginning of Henry V? He starts a bullshit war on pretext to consolidate his power. I mean, if you read those two plays together, I think it's really hard to see Henry V as a straightforward celebration of how. It, it's a portrait uh, based somewhat on Machiavelli's The Prince of um, someone sort of brilliantly conquering everything in front of him. He conquers the church, persuasively, not with violence, but he conquers the church. Then he goes and he conquers France, and then he conquers a new wife, you know, that he charms everyone around him. He gets whales on his side. You know, there's, there's, there's that sort of what he has to do to fulfill his ambitions to conquer. And, you know, I've been on plenty of panels where people disagree with this reading or they fit, or I, I was on a panel with a, um, uh, a neocon scholar who was like, yes, Shakespeare is saying that. And he's saying that's why Hal is good because he will do what is necessary to rule. And that's what makes him a good king. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's just, just as my reading is certainly revealing of me. I feel like that reading is revealing of, of you and your, your position. Well, there were, there were plenty of comparisons between, um, Henry the Fourth and Hal and George H. W. Bush and George W. Bush during yes, the George W. Bush era and the invasion I mean, of Iraq as the parallel to the invasion of France and 
Yeah, I, I agree to some extent with the Republicans who say that George W. Bush and Hal had a lot in common, but for the complete opposite reasons than, than they do, right? Yeah, the, mis- is, the misspent uh, youth. And yeah. I, some people, I think some people were trying to uh, say that uh, Cheney was false staff. Doesn't really make a ton of sense, aside from them both being kind of heavy. But, um, <laughs> the, um, yeah, I guess it depends on how, in part, you know, what, what was the understanding of uh, Agincourt, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and that whole, like, military escapade in Shakespeare's yeah. time, whether this was like, like the greatest thing we, we had ever done or whether this was seen as a waste of money. What's the point? Because they lost it all like, you know, in the subsequent years. Um, right. So yeah. Well, so, yeah. But no, no matter what, it is curious that Shakespeare, Shakespeare really goes out of his way. I feel like with how to underline unsympathetic things about him. Uh, he gets like one soliloquy in each play and his, his, that he's in. He's in three plays. And his big soliloquy in Henry the Fourth Part One, which comes right after we've met him and he has this hilarious scene with his drunken friends where they're, you know, one-upping each other in sort of dexterous verbal play. And it, it's just wonderfully charming. And then he says, um, as soon as they're all off stage, I'm using all of these people for my own political gain because, uh, you know, once the clouds move off the sun, we appreciate the sunshine more than if the sun had been shining the whole time, you know, um, which is like a, a pretty despicable thing to just immediately see someone say. Uh, and a lot of productions try to kind of apologize for it or make it so that he's sort of thinking it through as he's saying it. But there's nothing in the text that makes it seem that way. He really has a plan and he is executing it brilliantly. Um, yeah, and here and why imitate the sun, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, base, contagious the, base, uh, the base contagious clouds, exactly. And then, you know, when you get to Henry V at the very end of the Battle of Agincourt, what does he do? He commits a war crime. He orders all the prisoners to be killed, uh, right? And the and the and the men, and it happens on stage. It's a stage direction. The audience is meant to see it that the guards assassinate all the prisoners. You know, so there's a real darkness to that portrait, in part because I think Shakespeare, you know, like was could never escape a dialectic. If he ever asserted one thing, he had to assert its opposite and let Mm -hmm. them fight each other. You know, he was just addicted to that. It's in every single play. Um, And so I was interested in that when it comes to Hamilton, because you you get back to Hamilton and, you know, um, he betrays Lafayette, which is given about five seconds of stage time. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, Hamilton says, well, he's a smart man. He'll figure it out. And there certainly is no moment where the action stops and someone comes forward. is like, actually, he did not figure it out. It really sucked to be Lafayette at this moment in time. And, you know, yeah, yeah, so Lafayette ended, during the French Revolution, Lafayette ended up in like in prison and he was like there for 10 years or something like that. And eventually yeah, was released yeah. and then came back to yeah, America, exactly. I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not like there's the song where Lafayette is suddenly revealed and he's like singing about how much he's upset at Alexander, you know, (laughs) nor is there a moment where, um, you know, Hamilton, I'm not a historian of that time period, so I'm probably going to get this wrong. But, you know, there's a lot of skepticism around Hamilton's abolitionist bona fides um, from the community of historians that, that, that I follow and read anyway. Um, uh, and, and around those claims as they are made in the show. And so there's certainly no, you know, scene invented where someone comes to ask Hamilton to write more about slavery and he refuses to do so because there's other political things they have to get done first or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, so, so there is, 
um, so the complexities are there, but they're kind of hidden. They're buried. And much more of the negative side of Hamilton that we see in the second act is actually personal. It's him cheating on his wife. It's that his um, kind of charming upstart drive in the first act becomes this kind of off-putting arrogance in the second. The, the actual moment when it happens in the film anyway, for me, is at the very end of the first act when he says treasury or state, when he's not even listening to what George Washington is saying. Right. Because he's like, I'm going to make this demand that I run either the Treasury or the State Department. I mean, and everything about Lin-Manuel Miranda's facial expression, his physicality, everything is almost avaricious. It's, it's you know, that, that he's just so hungry for this. Um, and, of course, that he um, gets his son killed and then dies in a duel, you know, for these sort of petty honor disputes, which is to say for nothing, really. Um, uh, that's the part that's played up in the second half as opposed to the downsides of his political uh, point of view or the downsides of his ambition or his willingness to compromise. Mm-hmm. And as I pointed out in the piece, don't mean to give you a stem winder here. You just asked a simple question. Sorry. But <laughs> that's okay. you know, that's okay. as I, as I pointed out in the piece, you know, there's this, the room where it happens is this wonderful song about the kind of, uh, oiliness of compromise, that it's necessary for politics, but it's also distasteful. But it does not point out that actually there are other problems with compromise too. Like the compromises the founding fathers entered into weren't just like distasteful or looked bad or whatever. They preserved slavery. You know, like that was their big compromise. It's in fact called the three-fifths compromise. It, you know, you know, and so, and the show just doesn't really want to engage with that, which is fine. That's its right. But I was very interested in how often Shakespeare returned to the downsides of, of Hal's way of doing politics uh, and how for Hamilton, the downsides of Hamilton were mostly about him as a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So obviously there's a lot there. Um, you know, I'm thinking like, so the first act of Hamilton is like, you know, as I said before, it, it made me like weep almost nonstop, but it's also like, it's almost nonstop uh, uh, little, key phrase from the, from the play, like nonstop, like the, the songs just run into each other very quickly. Um, yes. They, and the forward momentum of the first like six or seven numbers is, is incredible. Like the, it's just like, you know, it's, it's almost like athletes performing. Um, they're, they're like all doing so much on stage. And, and that's part of the, that's part of the pleasure of it is how difficult what they're doing is watching right. them do these very difficult things. It is a tightrope act. You know, when David Diggs is not only speed rapping in, in Guns and Ships, but jumping on a table and dancing. And in a French in, accent. In a French accent. You know, part of it is what's going on in that moment is so great and so well written and everything. Part of it is you're just stunned that someone is pulling off something this hard. Yeah. And that's part of the joy of it, I think. Um, and the second act is much more like, you know, it slows into something. It settles into this kind of, you know you really feel during say no to this, the humid, the humidity of, of of a New York or Washington DC summer and that kind of loneliness and depression and boredom. I mean, it it is a much darker, sadder experience. Hi. So we had some uh, technical difficulties that ended our initial recording, uh, prematurely. And so we came back uh, a couple days later to finish this up. And that's why uh, we look a little bit different and wearing different clothes. Um, and, uh, so the, the point I was making when, uh, the connection broke was that, uh, you know, Henry the fourth part one and Henry the fourth part two, I have some parallel to, um, act one and two of, of Hamilton and, you know, act, act one is, is this very like kind of optimistic, um, you know, has, has like all this momentum and then act two, 
uh, much more tragic, things falling apart, and, uh, you know, characters dying and so forth, um, and, and darker, and the and many of the characters seem much less heroic. Um, you know, it's not an exact parallel, but, like, Henry the Fourth Part Two is... I think it's rarely performed as a standalone. It's sometimes performed if they do part one also. Um, I have never seen it performed as a standalone. Okay. It, yeah. It's, it's kind of strange. It, I mean, in, in many ways, it's a, a retread of a lot of things that happened in the first one. There's kind of, they, you know, kind of redo similar gags and, and stuff like that. Um, but the, you know, the famous part of it is kind of the, uh, well, there, there, uh, chimes at midnight, the, the line that became the Orson Welles, the title of the Orson Welles, uh, version is uttered by, uh, Falstaff in part two, and then also, um, the kind of like banishment scene at the end where, um, the newly crowned, uh, Henry V, uh, kicks Falstaff out, and I actually got, I got my copy here, I'll just read it just <laughs> very briefly because it's a great line. So Falstaff, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's, it, it, it's like a crowd scene, and Falstaff is calling out to, uh, the newly crowned king, he says, My king, my Jove, I speak to thee my heart. And then the king says, I know thee not, old man, fall to thy prayers. How ill white hairs become a fool and jester. I have long dreamt of such a kind of man, so surface swelled, so old and so profane. But being awake, I do despise my dream. And so this is, um, you know, uh, also goes back to what you were saying about, you know, Hal's, uh, from the very start, Hal has presented himself as kind of like living a double life and um, going to be able to use that the dissoluteness of, of his, uh, of his public behavior to, um, emphasize the changes once he becomes king. Um, and so, yeah. And so, uh, I mean, it, it's funny because getting back to Hamilton, I don't know. It, it's almost like, like, yeah, there's just, there's just so much, like you could almost perform act one as like a standalone. And then in the end, it's like, they won, you know, they, they, they right. and then hooray. And then, and then, well, you know, that's the end. Um, and then, yeah, everything gets, like, messier and people are portraying each other and having duels against each other. And dying. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost feels in a weird way like you think the first act is going to end with the Battle of Yorktown and everyone saying the world turned upside down. I mean, it feels like the end of an act. Got to go to New York. Got to meet my son. You know, yeah. all that stuff. And then, you know, there's just this, like, one of the few slight almost little pauses in the play. And then King George is right there and is like, all right you know, what comes next. And you realize that actually there's quite a bit more of the act to go, um, uh, to bridge us into the kind of harder realities and decay of the, the second half of the play yeah, or musical, that, I should say. And so the final song or number of act one is, you know, bridging the period between the end of the revolution and like the beginning of, um, the, you know, the constitutional government and stuff. Right. They kind of, they allied the Articles of Confederation, but, but all the stuff that Hamilton accomplished and, and it's, it's really, it's one of the best numbers in the, in the play just musically. And the, and the way it ends is, it's this kind of technique that I'm sure you, if there's a name for it, you know, it's where they, they bring in multiple other like themes, like musical themes from other yeah, songs. I I don't know if this is the technical term. I always think of it as the recapitulation, right? Because that's everything's just coming back then, and they do that all the time. And you know, the the show that does this kind of the most, either masterfully or gimmickly, cheaply, depending on how you think about the show, is Les Mis, because okay. Les Mis only really has like four melodies. Like every song in Les Mis can be sung on top of every other song in Les Mis, and over and over and over again, they keep pulling that, which is why you leave Les Mis with the entire show stuck in your head, <laughs> uh, which is part of uh, its brilliance and staying power, I suppose. Um, 
<laughs> right. So, yes, I, I actually learned about this uh, in a, a somewhat silly way, which is uh, they did a, they ripped it off in the South Park movie that came out. Yeah, of course. Of course. In, in yeah. 2000. And there's, yeah. there's one particular song I can't remember exactly what. That, Tomorrow that, Night, which is a parody of One Day More from uh, Les Mis. I mean, okay, it's, a, you know, it's very – but that's not the only song Les Mis does that in. Les Mis just does that constantly. I mean it's really remarkable how much it's like these Lego blocks that just fit together in a bunch of different combinations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I actually, I'll just mention this part now because it's so brilliant how it, it proves the brilliance of that particular song. So there's this, uh, uh, YouTube video that, uh, started going viral last week that is, is called Muppet Hamilton and we'll link to it or you just Google Muppet Hamilton. And it'll probably come up and it's one, it's one man. Um, it, there's no visuals. It's just audio. It's one man doing the entire, uh, original cast recording in playing all the characters as the Muppets. And so... Uh, Hamilton is Kermit, of course, and Eliza is Miss Piggy, and then um, Sam the Eagle is George Washington, <laughs> and um, Lafayette is uh, Fozzie, I think. And so, it, and it goes through. It has lots of. And so, this guy is a. a I think he's a. Um, you know, he, he's he's either a stand-up comedian or he does like mimicry or imitations professionally, and almost all the uh, all of them are, are very good, except I think, so Gonzo is Burr, and I think Gonzo is a little weak. Um, but aside from that, it, it's very well done. It's very funny. There's some, Gonzo's a tough voice to do. I mean, you to, know, to sing, especially to sing in, in the Gonzo yeah, exactly. voice. And, and it, comparing it to Leslie Odom Jr., uh, you have someone doing this crazy Gonzo voice. It doesn't exactly work, I think. But other <laughs> than that, it's mostly good. And even one of the silliest parts is that, um, Lawrence, so he only, only act one has been posted so far. He says he's going to do act two later. Lawrence is voiced by Beaker and you know, Beaker just goes like <laughs> meet, meet, meet right. or something like that. Right. And so all those lines are just sung by the guys going meet, meet, meet. And they do a similar joke for, um, for satisfied with Angel- Angelica is one of Gonzo's chickens. And so she is just bok, bok, balking and for the entire satisfied. song. It's, it's pretty wild, but anyway, when you get to the final song, is it, it, is it called My Shot or is that the, is that the earlier one? Whatever that final song is. No, the final song is nonstop. Nonstop, right. That kid is nonstop. Okay. Yeah. So he has it and he, and all the, um, Muppet characters are singing. And by the end of it, I was like, this sounds great. Like it it really, like the song itself is so well constructed that even one person doing like eight different Muppet imitations laid over each other, uh, singing towards (laughs) the end of it, I just, just like go into it. And then, you know, um, there's like the, you know, it's like Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton, just you wait. And, and um, and then there's the, you hear like a slight, uh, uh cannon fire sound or, or gunshot sound or something right, right at the very end. And then, but yeah, I, I was just, I never kind of had this experience where it's almost like, it's kind of like a weird Al, like the weird Al parody exposes like the brilliance of the original. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about like really bulletproof songwriting is that in a way, when you mock it, you're actually just showing how great it is. Right. Because the fundamentals are so are so strong. I mean, Weird Al, for example, almost always thinks of his parodies as a kind of tribute. I mean, he doesn't usually parody songs he dislikes. They're not really acts of vandalism. They're they're acts of of, of real joy. And I think if you've ever seen the incredibly funny weird Al behind the music because his life is not traumatic and he didn't do a lot of drugs. So he's like playing with the behind the music format. You know, it it really was serious to him when Coolio took such great exception to his parody of uh, Gangsta's Paradise when he did Amish Paradise, because I think he's used to this just being like essentially a tribute to songs that he loves. Um, 
And I think there's, yeah, there's definitely a similar thing there within, in Hamilton. I mean, if you want to make fun of Hamilton, like musical theater is very easy to make fun of. That's a, that is a barrel full of fish for you to shoot into, you know, but the songwriting craft is really spectacular in a way that is, um, if you've never heard it kind of hard to describe, because at first you're like, so wait, it's like musical theater and, and hip nineties hip hop. It's those two things put together, but you know, like it, it, the, the way that he blends them is, is really quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe this will be the final just part we'll discuss about about Hamilton. Um, so you know the show premiered in 2015, really hit hit big immediately, and carrying into 2016, the record the recording that we're talking about uh, was done in the middle of 2016, and so it's you know three and a half to four years later, um, and uh, it's been, been remarked upon that, that that this was like you know a paradigmatic work of the Obama era, and, if not the. Yeah, and ha because it was performed at the White House, like an early version was performed at the White House. Um, yeah. But even after that, you know, the themes of sort of of racial progress um, seem to echo the high hopes of of the Obama era. And so uh, it's a different world now in, in multiple ways. Um, is there anything that strikes you as kind of discordant or or just or just different in some way than it would have in mid twenty sixteen? That that's that is definitely that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I will say as I as I think I said before, although it's been a couple of days since we were recording this right. last, so forgive me if this is something I haven't said before. That the um, you know what the, what seeing it now did to me was restore my feelings about its greatness as a incredibly well crafted work of art. Um, and you know, I had kind of not exactly soured on it, but not accessed it in a long time because of sort of the change in the surrounding, um, political, political atmosphere. So in a weird way, I will say I was more like, um, just transported into the show in a really wonderful way. I was not thinking about it in terms of Trump. There's not a lot there that really relates to me, to the experience of, of living, um, under, Trump or living under this pandemic, which are which are two related things, except I will say, you know, the one white character in the show, King George, who is um, quite literally mad. I mean, King George was quite literally mad. There's lots of cute jokes about that uh, and references to it within the songs. But also, you know, part of how that character is portrayed is he has a very limited vocabulary of things he can do. And then he just does them over and over again. He has only one song that he sings right. and the words keep changing, but the melody remains the same. And he's this egomaniac who cannot uh, uh, understand why anyone wouldn't want to be ruled by him. You know, um, uh, certainly there's some resonances there but um uh to our current um to our current leadership uh but to me it's like a reminder of a much more optimistic idea of what the ex uh, american experiment could be um i didn't was not in tune personally with that optimism when I originally saw it. Uh, that's not why I love the show particularly. I love the show because of its, again, because of its craft and the power of those performances. Um, so it's not like I feel myself buying into it again now. Um, uh, uh, but 
it w- it is really nice in this moment to see a like truly brilliant um uh group of people of color on a broadway stage which we can't get to right now there are no broadway stages um uh doing this this brilliant work um uh about the possibilities, the aspirational possibilities of what America could be capable of. Um, that part of, excuse me, just knocked into this. That part of it is really great. But also, I do think, again, that the show's primary themes are really actually more about ambition than about the nature of this country. Okay. And so, it, uh, I mean, they play out within the milieu of the nature of this country, but it's the show's really about ambition. And, you know, we're in the midst of a presidential election right now. We're in the midst of watching a, two incredibly ambitious men are going to go at it to see who gets to rule the country. And so those sorts of themes will, will be ever present. will always be with us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, you can imagine some, you know, if, if uh, 50 years from now, this is reinterpreted by some other group of performers, you can imagine, you know, um, uh, King George is uh, styled like Trump or something or yes. what people remember yeah, of, of Trump 50 years from now if if we're all still around um yeah in 50 years do you know remembers. do you know the play Mr Burns by Am Washburn is this it's a weird kind of Simpsons yeah this is a play i highly recommend you and anyone watching this read it <laughs> because what it's about is um the world the, the apocalypse happens and it takes place each of its three acts take place sort of further and further post the apocalypse, right? And so we lose all energy. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a plague and power plants go out and et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And what remains of our culture is what people remember about the Simpsons. And so I'm sort of imagining, you know, 50 years from now, you know, our, our society's fallen. What do they remember about Trump? Well, it's just a blonde haired, you know, villain with tiny hands or something, you know, that's the Mr. Burns version of it. So in each act, there's a reenactment of the Cape Fear episode of The Simpsons that gets further and further away from what the actual episode is. That's Yeah, okay. I've heard of this, but I've never seen it. It does sound fa- yeah. uh, fascinating. Kind of like uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, the uh, uh, yes, science fiction exactly. novel. Yeah, yes, and I'm sure Anne Washburn read that and as a fan of that book would be my guess. But yes, it's like the canticle of Leibowitz happens to the Simpsons. So I'm trying to imagine that happens to Trump and Hamilton and they sort of get combined into some horrible monster. <laughs> right. It's funny to think, you know, um, how do, uh, you know, how do Americans today remember uh, Henry the fourth, the human being? Uh, probably not at all. Uh, they, they just remember whatever, We've, we've gotten from Shakespeare, who of yeah. course was using someone else's chronicle history, and, and so there's so many layers of interpretation and like possible distortion and meaning to who we, um, who we remember this historical personage to actually be. Um, okay, well, I, yeah, I think, yeah, the, the, the kind of like parts, parts of the play have become, um, kind of like totems, and particularly the immigrants who get the job done line, which, um, started getting, maybe it did before, but especially when Trump started ramping up the anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric started getting like long applause breaks uh, during when the, when the characters say it, um, yeah. such that you know people are clapping in the middle, right in the middle of a movement of a number for like thirty seconds or something. Um, and yeah, and then there's a couple you know other kind of parts of that, but I, yeah, I think I don't know. I, I well, I so so currently uh, Broadway is closed. Uh, probably won't be open until next year or something we don't we don't know you can't see Hamilton right now but I, I would encourage people if, if they're unfamiliar with it check out the Disney Plus version if they have Disney Plus or have access to Disney Plus somehow um, 
and I guess you would, I, I'm guessing you would agree with that. I think it's absolutely worth seeing. Yes. I mean, I, I, I love this musical. I love these performances. I, I, you know, have certain reservations about, you know, the production, just being a director myself. I have other ways that I would have done things. That's, that's part of, you know, what it's about, but absolutely. If you, if it's sorry, uh, yes, but absolutely it's, it's, it's worth seeing and checking out and it'll be, you'll have a good time. Yeah. And is there, is there a Henry the fourth that you would recommend that is out there? There's times at midnight. I don't know if that's on streaming anywhere. Uh, chimes at midnight can be really hard to find if I remember correctly, although it's, it's, it's wonderful. And also nuts. I mean, you know, most of the dialogue is re-recorded in post, right. so like nothing ever syncs up with anything. Um, uh, it's a mess, but a brilliant mess. Um, the Hollow Crown movies are very good. The production values are really solid. It's great performers like um, Jeremy Irons, you know, Ben Wishaw's and Richard II uh, and things like that. Um, uh, so they're wonderful, wonderful, wonderful performances. They're a little solemn, as we said earlier in this episode. I think there's a certain like British seriousness that actually the material doesn't warrant. And I wish they were more anarchic and fun, but, um, that's definitely a great way to experience those plays. Yeah. They don't play up the humor in the way that one could, but, um, if you've, if you've never seen it before, it gives you a good taste. Okay. So, uh, uh, thank you, Isaac, for persevering through various technical and chronological <laughs> problems. Yeah. Coming back to rec- uh, finish this up with us. Um, well, what your audience doesn't know is that this part was actually recorded earlier. We've actually gone back in time <laughs> using a time machine to record for mm-hmm. n- some reason. We've now screwed up the continuity of this universe. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, I will snap my fingers and we will all dissipate into dust as in another Great. popular, um, fictional series. Okay, so Isaac, you're on, uh, you're on Twitter. Is it just I- Isaac Butler? No, it's actually at, uh, Parabasis. Oh, P-A-R-A-B-A-S-I-S. right. P A R A B A S I S. Okay. Uh, but you can also check out the two podcasts I've done at slate.com slash Shakespeare for my Shakespeare and politics related one or the one I currently co-host, which is working at slate.com slash working. Great. And I highly recommend, uh, that Shakespeare one, which is about six or so episodes, uh, each one on a, on a different play and, uh, is very interesting. And, you know, maybe I'll re-listen to it <laughs> sometime soon. <laughs> thank you. Um, okay. So, so thank you, Isaac. And thanks to our viewers and hey. listeners. And we'll see you next time.